0: Hi there, my name is Muhammad, and I'm the host of the Reconfigured podcast, a show that explores the intersection of technology, culture, and society. We bring professionals to talk about their extended experience or discuss about a specific topic that might interest the audience. All of our episodes are available for free with no cost to the general public. Just a quick reminder that we're always on the lookout for interesting guests Who can share their unique perspective on the topics we cover or you can pitch in in a new topic to discuss on the pod just reach out to us on social media or apply to our available opportunities posted on polywork so welcome to the show today i'm fortunate enough to be with shane shane would you like to introduce yourself
1: hey i'm so happy to be here uh i'm shane i'm an engineering manager with over uh, 14 years of experience in the industry i've worked on the front end on the back end, full stack, uh, media, all sorts of different things. And I'm just excited to be here.
0: Yep. So you're currently working at Algolia. <laughs> what would you like to talk about Algolia and what they offer?
1: Yeah, sure. So Algolia is an AI search and discovery platform. It's a way for developers, um, application owners, site owners, to add search to their site. So if you have an app native uh, iOS or Android application, a SaaS application, and you want site search, uh, content discovery and recommendations, or something like enterprise and workplace search, like maybe you're trying to merge your wiki content with your Google Drive content and everything, and you want it to all be private, you can use Algolia to do that. Um, I was actually, when I joined Algolia, um, I was surprised to learn that it's actually second only to Google in terms of the number of searches a year. I think in the, we're in the trillions, uh, space, um, just this last black Friday, I know that, um, we reached a peak load of around a hundred thousand, uh, queries per second. Um, and I think we spiked up to like, f- uh, like five or 6 billion, uh, search queries. Um, so. A lot, a lot of search, uh, a lot of queries, uh, a lot of data moving around. Um, I work on the developer experience team, uh, an so engineering manager for that team. And, uh, one of the areas that I'm, I really like working on as well on search is the doc search program. So if you, you or anyone else has a site and you'd love to have free search, uh, doc search is a great way to do that. If you're, it's a technical blog, um, or uh developer documentation of some kind it's a great way to just get up and started if you don't want to manage your own uh search infrastructure uh so that's a little bit about a little bit about what i do and uh about algolia as well
0: so when we talk about developer experience which means you would your job is to write documentations and to write certain sdks or how does it work
1: yeah so at algolia developer experience is focused on uh all the things that we can do to make developers who use Algolia and their lives easier. So documentation, uh, as you mentioned, that's one area. So we're actually building out a, a new version of our documentation platform. Um, Doc search is another program that we manage. As that's a very developer focused initiative. Uh, we're also focused on our command line interface, the Algolia CLI. Um, I know that a lot of SREs, reliability engineers, engineers in general, um, like working with the CLI and in your bash interface to work with Algolia. And so this is something that we've developed. And um, we're also just recently managing our crawler. So the crawler is a way for you or anyone else who's coming to Algolia, if you want to bring data from your site into Algolia to make it searchable, we offer this as a way, uh, we offer this as a a solution. Um, So if you don't, if you have data in a bunch of different places, but you know you have it on your site, we can leverage the crawler to to bring that all in. So um, as far as SDKs go, um, we do have uh, a team that's also dedicated to that. And we work uh, uh, pretty closely with them to make sure that our documentation is uh up to speed and that we're kind of working in tandem to understand how we can uh improve that
0: I, mean, I wanna talk about the whole crawler thing so you said you would launch a crawler and it would crawl my website let's say and it would get the information can i also give the crawler let's say like a bunch of json files and it would parse them for me
1: so if you have json files um one of the great I think, uh, things about Algolia is that um, it works with unstructured JSON out of the box. So if you have JSON files, you could uh, use one of the SDKs to upload them directly and into an index, and uh, you're good to go. Um, You can leverage the crawler to map external data and to, to content that you're finding in nature, but it's the crawler is, I think really geared more towards, um, crawling documents like HTML, PDFs, um, and, uh, other like PDF like, uh, files as well.
0: Yeah. I'm going to move to a different topic, which is that before you worked at Algolia, you worked at LinkedIn for eight years. Would you like to talk about your experience and the kind of adventures that you went through?
1: Yeah, sure. I can I can talk a bit about that. So, back in 2013, um, I joined LinkedIn. Um, moved to California when I was living in Colorado. Moved out there for it. Um, it was a really, like, mine kind of really great experience. When I remember first coming to the campus, um, which at the time there was like four buildings all around the cul de sac it almost felt like in some cases i was like back in college again just that vibe of people walking around between buildings instead of holding books and such it's people holding laptops um and just this very uh, high energy around learning and doing um and so i had the uh, uh opportunity to join the horizontal ui infrastructure team and this was a team that was focused on building the ui libraries that would help power uh, other products around linkedin so uh you could think of it as um uh, like a, a bootstrap um a type of a library where it comes with all of the components the buttons form elements um interactive components as well uh and that you could kind of piece together to, to build the site that you're looking to and I joined, and at the time, this was around, you know, I think mobile was becoming more and more uh, ubiquitous. It was becoming more common, and LinkedIn was, hadn't quite reached its mobile moment or when 50% of the traffic coming to LinkedIn came more on mobile than on desktop, but it was getting close. And so there was a big push to make sure that everything that we start to build was mobile friendly. And so my initial role was to help build the mobile UI library for web. And so building out those components so that we could help uh, other teams uh, enable that. And what was really interesting being in that role is it required that, um, you know, I work with other teams that I hear about, you know what's coming down the pipeline what are they trying to build um what are the concerns they have as far as uh components and such they need so it gave me this birds eye view of other product teams at linkedin and so i felt that was i felt really lucky kind of being in that position because it was very um uh eye opening to see all of that happen and after about a year year and a half on that team and working on ui infrastructure with a little bit of a pivot to work on some security initiatives as well Mm -hmm. i really want to get more involved in the business side of uh, building the product so I was largely on like a very engineering focused team there wasn't necessarily a product manager Um, we worked with design very closely because this was essentially a design library but I want to get more involved with like the, the product uh, part of it. And so I, one of my design partners was actually looking to make a transition as well. And they had moved over to the growth team and And talking with them, having built this relationship with them, they mentioned that there was a need um, for uh, engineer, more engineering talent on the team to help uh, push some things forward. And critically, one of the things that I was very interested in learning about was the uh address book import feature. I think at this time uh you know LinkedIn was a bit infamous for having a address book import feature that I think some people had considered like a dark pattern in a way where you know you're on mobile, you add your address book, and then it's not very clear that the next button that you hit is importing and sending invitations to everybody. Um, And so I wanted to join in a way to kind of learn, you know, what are we what is there's anything that I can do as an individual to help make this experience better? Maybe there's already things that are in flight that I just am not aware of. Um, And just understand, like, what are some of the business challenges that are kind of making this pressure of hey can we change this experience or will it impact some kind of metrics um, ultimately uh you know we were able to I was able to actually work with uh my that the same design partner to build a better version of the web experience that was clearer um that we felt was much clearer that gave like a different defaults and uh, what we found and what I learned going through all these elements of growth was the importance of understanding metrics and using that data to kind of help build your arguments, especially if it feels like it's uh, going against the grain. Uh, you want, you need data to be able to show that this is going in a positive direction. And so in this case, we were able to show that the new design was, while it was driving fewer total invitations, the quality of the connections as a result of those invitations were now higher because the intuition there was that people were now selecting who they wanted to invite more. They were kind of spending maybe a little bit more time on that screen, um, especially for the folks coming through on web, uh, which is where we were focused. So that was um, one key insight. The other key insight was, um, there was uh, there's a feature on LinkedIn called "People You May Know." It's um, uh, recommendations for who to connect with. And um, it's, I think, still one of the, the best in, in the industry as far as being able to surface and have that magical moment where, within the first few rows, you see, "Oh yeah, I actually do know that person. I'll send a connection invitation." So at the time, there was um, two versions. Of the user interface for the People You Maypo know page. They they looked identical. It was just the infrastructure backing them that was different. And so the version one, which was a legacy version, harder to maintain, uh, and version two, which was on a newer version of architecture, uh, there was a better separation of concerns, um, and it was easier to maintain. However, by the point that I had joined the team, um, this page was kind of stuck in this 50/50 mode where 50% of traffic was going to version 1 50% of traffic was going to version 2 and there was some resistance from the product side to move to version 2 fully because there was a slight discrepancy in some of the metrics when it came to con- you know this idea of uh connections uh, being and invitations being sent and the so it wasn't an easy to just say like, hey, we, we accept this and we're just gonna ship the version two because we know it's a better technical decision, it's easier to maintain. There was, you know, there was a a clear business impact that would be have if we had it. Even if it was seemed like it was small when you're dealing on the scale of millions and millions, it it adds up. So this uh it required a you know, I had to sort of relearn all all of the internals of how the V1 worked and how the V2 worked. And it took a decent amount of time, uh, I would say maybe a month, um, maybe a little bit more before I felt I had a good, really strong understanding of all the different nooks and crannies on V1 and V2. And what I found was that on V2, there was... Um, actually one mechanism that was working, but we just weren't tracking it correctly. There was um, uh, an event that needed to be fired. So it tells a backend system that a user had taken a certain action in a very specific case. And it's whenever we showed a prompt to tell people like, hey, maybe you wanna use address book import. Um, And while that prompt was working on V2, it just wasn't being tracked. Uh, appropriately. And so um, it was just causing some downstream effects. Once we had fixed that, the metrics discrepancy was uh, mitigated and we we're able to say, okay, now we can, uh, we can launch V2. Um, I think the, and like the key thing there is just one dealing with legacy code and migrations is really, really challenging. And two, um having building, spending time and having, Uh, setting aside time to be able to build that in-depth understanding of how things work, um, is super important. Um, and so, uh, this is probably close to halfway through my LinkedIn journey at this point. Um, after these projects, I had the opportunity, um, someone had come up and said, Hey, we're starting to build further build out our engineering presence in the New York office. And we're building a new team. It's the video team. And my manager had actually brought it up and um, just kind of offhandedly. And I thought about it for a week and I decided, you know what? I'm going to do this. This sounds like an excellent opportunity. I'm going to put my, raise my hand and say, I'm interested. And so um, my manager was a little bit surprised, but they were very supportive and uh, things were put in motion. And in 2016, I moved to New York uh, and was the uh, first web engineer on the video team. Um, and, uh, yeah, and it was at that point that it was a smaller team. It was almost like, um, you know, like a startup a little bit within the larger company, cause we were isolated from a lot of the other big things that were happening at the time, such as a big rewrite happening with the LinkedIn applications, um, we were purely focused on is video right for LinkedIn and, um, the hypothesis that we had was yes, but we had to kind of demonstrate that. And so I'm um, working with a small team, um, product manager, um, and engineers engineer on each platform. Um, we built a lightweight version of a V vi- a video app that was, that we gave to a bunch of, uh, influencers or LinkedIn, like popular LinkedIn personalities. That was a video recording app called LinkedIn record. And uh on our end we also built the uh ability to playback video on the linkedin app as well as the, the web application um being on the the website uh what was challenging was we were in the middle of this migration between an old version of the entire linkedin website to a new version of the application using ember js and so we had to build a system that would allow us to sort of be in both because there was going to be time when we launched this and then the new version of the site was going to start gradually ramping out. So whatever we built had to had to work in both and also be maintainable somewhat within both with the one engineering resource myself that we had at the time. Um, so what we did was we I leveraged our exist, we had an existing video playback functionality on LinkedIn, and it was simply a mechanism to load YouTube videos and embedded YouTube videos on the feed and play them back. Um, we hooked into that and said, we're going to treat our videos essentially as another embeddable video. Um, we'll treat it as an iframe much as we are with YouTube use the same API the same browser APIs that are being used to communicate with the YouTube videos with our videos um so behind the scenes we're using post message to communicate between the uh parent page and these these iframes um and we've basically built it as if this was a, another YouTube video uh but just you know we were loading the video on our end um, and so using that mechanism we were able to uh, sort of build this video player that was self-contained within this iframe and worked on both the legacy site and the new site uh, because we had already built the functionality to deal with playing the youtube videos so we were able to kind of build that leverage um, and so that allowed us to sort of get video out the door for web um, and with the videos that were posted validate that video was the future. And so um, that ultimately gave the team the green light to build up the team. Um, You know, we added more engineers. Um, That was a time that I ended up switching as a staff engineer to an engineering manager and just um, building the team and going from there. And so it can definitely, there's more to go in there, but that's uh, uh, quite a bit about my LinkedIn journey.
0: But mostly you dealt with the shifting from legacy systems to newer systems.
1: Yeah, there was a lot of that. And I think that uh it's it's kind of a bit of a I'd say it's almost a bit of a meme in I think in the engineering communities that a lot of work um tends to be in that realm of it feels like you're moving some from something old to new. Uh but it's it's not just that move. Usually there's um additional functionality that you're getting out of moving to something new that could be a better developer experience as well as a better customer experience um better features more things that are, are better for the business old overall and so a lot of decision going going to that but i feel like a lot of um especially at i think uh yeah, large and small companies but even i would say more so maybe even on larger companies you're you're not just purely building something new all the time and launching it. Sometimes you're dealing with these like sort of migrations from older systems to newer systems. And the hope is that you project enough of it that you can maintain those systems for a decent amount of time, two to five years. Let's say Um, that it's something that exists for a long enough time that you can iterate on it to learn about, the next generation of your customers or where you want to go. I
0: just want to ask about you wanted to shift from just, just writing code to certain business aspect. And you mentioned it before where you want to get more involved in the business Mm -hmm. as, as someone who writes code for a living, what's the incentive for me when I understand more of the business logic than just developing the code?
1: Great question. The incentive there is that you start to understand if you can understand what the intent is behind a certain change you can begin to make uh better suggestions for the future either for the architecture of what you're building or even better things for the user experience because as someone who is knee deep in the code you have a, a a very interesting perspective about what's possible and what isn't and um, oftentimes thinking about, uh, okay, if the goal is to, inc- you know, bring this metric and increase it, uh, maybe there's a better way. Um, there's a way that hasn't been considered yet. And by, uh, doing that, you both increase, you make things kind of easier on yourself because maybe you find a simpler solution or, you find a way to improve the business um, even more than was expected. And that's a better reflection on your skills and capabilities as well. And so understanding the goal behind what you're working on, especially how it connects to the overall business goals, which are often tied to metrics, I think is critical.
0: I'm going to shift towards different things that after yeah. work, actually before or after your LinkedIn story, which is you've also worked at Twitter, but before the Elon acquisition, would you want to describe your experience during the transition of the period in Twitter's leadership? How did it impact the team's dynamic and all that? And if you want to talk about your adventures there as well.
1: Yeah, sure. So I, um, I joined uh, Twitter in 2021, um, after many years on at LinkedIn, I had made the decision that it was time for a change, and Twitter was a company that I'd really admired and had been very interested in. Um, and so, about you know, I started on the profile team. Um, it was a team that had was relatively new in terms of within the organizational structure, um, and it was it was built because for a while the profile on Twitter hadn't been uh iterated on a lot there was no like singular owner behind it that was looking at it and saying okay how do we improve this experience try new things and so the team was established to do that and i was coming in to lead um, one part of the team um on account types and one of the first account types that we were building toward was bot accounts we wanted to make it very clear for users um on twitter to be able to distinguish between uh, tweets that are coming from automated accounts and tweets that aren't, um, and so that was one of our it was one of our first uh, projects that we were building out. And I guess about six, I want to say about six months into my tenure there, that's when um, Elon started making overtures about. Uh, purchasing, you know, investing in Twitter, then ultimately going through the whole purchase cycle and the back and forth there. And this was one of the first times in my career, and I think for many, where there was just a lot of unknowns. Um, the You know, there was only so much that uh, leadership at the company could say um, because everything was kind of tied up in this deal. And there's quite honestly, uh, in, in hindsight, you know, reading about everything, there wasn't a lot that um, um, that was known because uh, there of just the way that this, this deal had to be handled. Um, so there are a lot of assumptions being made. And I think initially, you know, you could, in the beginning of this, time period, I would say the uh feeling towards this acquisition was probably a, a bell cur- on a bell curve. You had people on on one side that were uh very much uh super for it and yeah this is gonna be exciting and new and it's gonna really push us forward. Um most people were in the middle where I think it was like is this, I'm kind of cautious about this. I'm not sure what to think of it. I'm going to just focus on my work and uh, on there. And then there were people, and then at the other end, it's like, I'm not going to work for Elon. I I don't want to do that and, uh, and such. And so um, I think a lot of this initial time was kind of spent figuring out where, You know, where do I personally stand? Where do each individual on their own figure out what is their level of risk tolerance? And I think that's where, um, uh, leadership like the uh, middle management sort of came in to say, you have to do what's right for yourself. And that is what we echoed, um, figure out what is your risk tolerance? What is, um, uh, you know, keeping your, You know, sanity and check in a way, um, and just being in touch with your feelings about how you want to grow and this is, you know, the way you want to kind of move forward. And I think, um, you know, a lot of people have this wait and see approach. Um, uh, I, you know, so I had started on profile, and then um, for the last uh, a few months of my tenure at Twitter, I had the uh, honor of managing the Birdwatch and Accessibility product teams um birdwatch is now called community notes um but a a lot of the work that i was doing as a manager during this transition period was um really just continuity keeping the lights on managing our roadmap um our delivery workflow something very interesting about birdwatch uh, at the time was the the way the team was structured within the company was very uh unique in that it was Um, largely, I would say, somewhat isolated from the trials and tribulations and changes and and such that were happening with the rest of the organization. It was sort of focused on this core product uh, and building out Birdwatch, making it the best that it can be. And um, the team had been given that uh, trust and that free reign, I think, by, by leadership. And so it was interesting to come into a team and seeing different slightly different norms and and ways of working and trying to help maintain that during this time of, uh, upheaval. Um, but, um, you know, I think at the end of the day, uh, work with what, you know, be clear on your own aspirations and what you want to get out of the situation. Um, and, uh, go from there i will definitely can talk more about that but i think there's um it was just such an interesting uh nerve-wracking and um just challenging experience from both a individual level and as a manager kind of thinking about um, how can i show up for a team knowing that there's so much uncertainty during this time um and how do you kind of keep the ship um going And is it right to do that, uh, given the circumstances? And so a lot of questions that came up that I think will, uh, that have helped kind of steer my own management philosophies going forward. And um, I think we'll, people will probably look back on that time. There'll be things maybe we'll read about and um, be able to learn from and we'll come out stronger for it. Uh, So yeah, a a bit of my time at Twitter there.
0: But I want to just give a little side note. Community notes is the best thing that I've ever seen on the platform and so i'm just gonna be <laughs> realistic man there's, i there's accounts yeah. there's accounts on twitter just people like community notes roasting people it's, <laughs> it's just amazing um, it's just amazing yeah i you know the
1: um community notes i think is it's and you know knowing like the team behind it and um a lot of the work it was initially um there was a very strong uh academic uh, consortium that would uh, meet and you can actually go on the site today i checked very recently uh, you can download the anonymized data all the code for community notes is open source because a lot of the vision for it was that this could be a system that um, other sites and applications leverage to help fight disinformation Um, there is a lot of uh I the exact stats escape me at the moment, but there was at the time there was there there was a uh, paper that was released that showed that it did help um, uh, lessen the spread of disinformation when a community note ultimately was approved and, and shown on on something. Um, but yeah, it's a, a little bit out my head.
0: <laughs> but when you worked at LinkedIn, you worked at Algolia, and you worked at Twitter. What is the work environment and culture different between, let's say a larger company like LinkedIn compared to a smaller company, let's say like Algorio?
1: Yeah, I think, um, uh, culture at a company, there's, there's multiple different levels to it. There's the larger company culture and what the company aspires to be. And then there's individual teams and what the day-to-day experience is like. I think at a larger company, you are more likely to experience uh, those differences between different teams. So like one team, if, if there was like a survey result, it might say, oh, this is the best culture ever within the same company. And then another team will say, oh, we're having a lot of challenges. And even though it's the same company, it's because it's so large that a lot of these The teams have their own norms that are established. This can happen at smaller companies too, but it's, I believe, in my opinion, less pronounced. Um, uh, There's just uh, only so much that I think can develop when you have fewer people involved. And so um, I think at a uh, a smaller company, uh, you know, it's again all companies and such are different. So I'm kind of speaking from my experiences, but I think that you, there is a bit more opportunity potentially for, if you want to try different things, um, it can be easier because there's fewer um, people owning different things, or there's, you know, one person that owns a lot and they're looking to get help from it. And so if you want to try something new, Um, uh, oftentimes a smaller company can, can be a great way to wear multiple hats. Um, but in that sense, I think, uh, culture can be more greatly affected, um, as well at a smaller company because the ripple effects of, uh, one person on a smaller team can be, I think, felt more than on a larger company and so and that's for both the i think it's both positive for positive and negative things so um that's you know in general a high level of view of how i'd seen like work culture differentiates between company size um i one other thing i'll add is i think also um, larger companies have you know they just have a larger uh budget there's just more money at disposable to try different things. Um and so in that sense it can it can feel like it's oh yeah, there's like unlimited possibilities and such. Um, whereas at smaller companies, you are being you know, there's you only have so much uh, a budget for trying new things and you really are really managing um uh spend um you know more especially as a manager um, uh, uh, I think in a small company, kind of analyzing that much more, um, and it, of course, again, my experiences depends on the team, but that those are some of the things that I would uh,
0: highlight. But also, there's some things that in a in a larger company, you can always switch teams. So if you're in LinkedIn, you didn't like your team, you can shift to a different team that you might like, and you give a positive review about the company. But when you're in a smaller company, you you don't have that much of flexibility.
1: Yeah. I think that in a, in a smaller company, you have potentially um, there are fewer like teams to switch to um, uh, because there's just, that's just the nature of it. There's, there's few teams, but I, I do think that at a larger company, there's also can be more process involved in that kind of switch. There's a lot of, um, uh, considerations at play with being able to sort of make a switch like that, or being able to focus and and change direction. I think at a smaller company, there can be, even if you're not switching teams, you as an individual, I think can focus on uh, different areas. Um, It's much easier to kind of jump into sometimes much easier to jump into like something else without needing to get approval in a way. Um, and worry about like, oh, am I stepping on like someone else's toes?
0: Yeah. I'm gonna move to a different question, which is yeah. can you share your journey from being a software developer to an engineering manager what were some pivotal points when sure. during this transition
1: Sure um throughout my uh software developer throughout so my career as a software developer um i had multiple managers who had um at some point during our one-on-ones uh had brought up the idea of hey um you know, based on your performance and based on your uh work and and how you approach situations and how you do all these sorts of things you could make a great manager and is that something that you've considered and at every conversation I said, um, it's not something I want to do right now. I'm very focused on building up my technical skill set. And that's where I want to keep my focus for the time being. Uh, But it kept happening. You know, it happened at my very, very first job. It happened at LinkedIn um, multiple times. um, And ultimately, the pivotal moment that sort of shifted that was the need for an engineering manager Um, so when i had made that move to new york to work on the new york city engineering team help build out video now that we approve video we're building out the team Um, we started to hire more web engineers and there were more people moving from uh, the west coast to the east coast to, to kind of take on some of those roles and so i went from being one of only two Web engineers to now there being eight, nine, ten web engineers in the office. And so I felt that uh, there was a need for someone who could represent the needs of the web engineers, who could help develop the careers of those new joining the company and connect them with the rest of the company. Because by this point, you know, I'm four or five years into my tenure. Um, three or three, four or five years into my tenure, I have a lot of institutional knowledge. I know um, different people at the company, especially within the the web uh, engineering community at LinkedIn. And so, I felt that if there was a time to make this transition, this is as good as time as any because there is just an absolute need to have someone with that knowledge and uh, th- also the desire to help foster those connections and growth and so um i you know talked about it with my manager at the time and they agreed and they were like they were glad to hear it and we uh ultimately formed um, an a video web engineering team that was focused on building uh, video related products on the our web platforms and you know it's uh yeah, it was, a it was a great, the transition, I can get into that a bit, but it was, um, uh, it was a great experience, uh challenging experience to go from being a, uh, technical individual contributor to now officially being a people manager. Um, and so, uh, part of that transition did involve, um, kind of stepping into the role of an engineering manager without like the official title and actually trying it out and seeing like, hey, is this a right fit for me? Do members of the team see me as um, a partner in their careers as an engineering manager um, to kind of fill that that role and that gap? And so before my title or anything officially changed, I was kind of already stepping into that role a bit and and that helped uh, immensely
0: but during your transition there's certain pitfalls and things that you learned along the way what kind of advice would you want to give to someone who let's say myself I'm a technical person I want to become an engineering manager what are the things that you would advise I did not fall into or take into consideration when starting out
1: yeah I think there's A series of questions that i would encourage anyone considering management to ask themselves and then i have some advice as well um questions to ask yourself would you enjoy one-on-ones and tailoring to each person on your team and being a partner or maybe even a sponsor in their career development i think dealing with people and managing people there's no set playbook there's a lot of different learnings and inspiration out there to help with that but it's um it's not like code where there's a deterministic way of handling a situation um every person is different and you have to treat them as such um are you okay with and on that same note are you okay with dealing with ambiguity when it comes to dealing with people um again people are they're human beings we have uh uh, aspirations, feelings, emotions, we have to be able to um, handle that, in, in certain ways. Um, another one that I, I was trying to think of a way to phrase it. I think it was, uh, that I think of when it comes to being a managers, it's, are you willing to put the needs of the company, or your customer above yourself? And maybe even sometimes your team? and i think that's a hard question to uh i think for some folks to answer because it's it's hard to look at a situation that's happening with the company for example and say you know what this is the direction the company is moving in maybe we do have to shift projects maybe we do have to like put a pause on some things that people are really passionate about in order to kind of serve the greater good and so being able to make those kinds of decisions can be really challenging and so really thinking about can you put yourself in that position where you have to kind of make those hard calls is something that um, uh, I would definitely ask yourself. Um, Kind of related to some of my experiences, can you help foster a a culture that ships software in the face of challenging times? Um, There's not every day there's a billionaire buying a company, but thinking about uh, when things aren't going well, how do you? Are you able to kind of build the energy and um, find a way to continue to deliver uh, for customers? And if not, how do you handle that? You know, what's, are you prepared to, you know, give that uh, maybe not so great news to your stakeholders or managers, um, uh, customers, uh, and so forth? the other one I would say to ask yourself is, are you comfortable delegating? Could you delegate something that, for example, could you delegate something that you're an expert at as an individual contributor? It may be a growth opportunity for somebody else on your team. Delegate that and not micromanage. I think it can be very difficult if you're um, if you're someone who's an expert in a particular, say, skill set or subsystem. And you're essentially have to kind of hand off the reins. And maybe there's some things where it's like, oh, I, I know I would do this a certain way. Um, But it's not the only way to do it. But maybe it's the better way. Um, But you can't, you know, you can't, you have to deal with those kinds of emotions and challenges of like, I don't want to micromanage this person because this is a growth opportunity for them. be able to also but here's the thing
0: but when i say i know how to do it better is it more of a biased thing because there's a chance that the other person's solution might not be good at the beginning but better at a later stage than your solution
1: it's absolutely a bias and that's uh one of the key things to to i think to recognize you know when we say it's something is better it's being able to relieve that ego and say is you know, this is no, there's not just one solution for this particular challenge. Um and asking the questions to understand how this is going to better serve things in the future. And I think that for some people that can be challenging, um, to kind of let go of. Um, so that's something that I it's 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 it, you know, a lot of and again, a lot of these questions and advice, it's it's easier said than done. Um and so really introspecting and being like, can I do this, is something that I think is uh, super important. Um, the other question I'd ask is, I think a lot of times in middle management, you may be taking flack from above in you, yourself in the organizational hierarchy or below, like team members who are unhappy with uh, the way something is going, processes and whatever. So are you prepared to be that kind of umbrella for your team? and to turn those either like absorb that or turn those kinds of flack into um, uh, something better for the team. Um, so I think that, you know, those are, those are some questions I would ask. I think from the more of the advice and thoughts perspective, I would say um, try to avoid what I've seen referred to as the squishy middle of, of middle management. I define it as something that's not quite responsible for either the plans, process, and people on the team, which I'll get into, uh, and not quite, re- and you're not quite responsible for the, the technical decisions and expertise in the team. So you're kind of like, not almost like a little bit responsible for everything, but not quite responsible for anything. Um, that's, I think, can actually lead to burnout. I think it can, um lead to just other challenges of not of that feeling of like inadequacy and such Um, as a manager you're going to be spending your time i think a lot on plans and process and people what does that mean plans are around thinking about uh strategically for your team as well as your product or whatever it is that you're uh, working on um thinking about process how do we get things done how do can we eliminate uh, process where it makes sense? Are we adhering to um, if there's any process that's a legal requirement? Uh, are we kind of following that and making sure we're not introducing new risks into the system? And then people. Um, at the end of the day, you're also you're a people manager. So you have to really care about the individuals on your team. Um, I think those... Areas are where, as a manager, you're going to be spending most of your time. And so, thinking about how you spend your time today and if you want to spend your time on those things um, and kind of comparing that and weighing that is, I think, an important part of the equation of deciding yourself to be a manager. Um, other advice build uh, professional relationships with other teams and other managers. I think it's very easy to become. Um, you know, kind of focused insularly on your team and say, okay, we're going to get this done. We're going to work on making my team the best it can be. Um, But you can't always do it alone. I think that especially at larger companies um, there's a lot of dependencies. You want to be aware of changes that are happening so that as a manager, you can help prepare your team for either organizational changes, technical changes, um things that could be coming down the pipeline in terms of work and so having that awareness and finding where in your company um, maybe there's already some processes in place and if there's not um build them find ways to to connect with the managers and tech leads of other teams so that uh you can build that awareness of of what's happening and bring and distill those insights to your own team um I think the, the last advice, uh, main advice I would give is it may take some time. If you do decide to step into the manager role, it may take some time to find to find the management style that works for you. Um, and to that, I would say, think about the managers you've had in, in the past and what they've done well and what they haven't done well, and whether those are things that, um, you're interested in building on. So, uh, you know, if you do, if anyone decides to step into the management role, know that it's, it may not be, you may not get it right off the bat, but it's something that uh, you can work towards, you can shift your style, you can find what works for you. And uh, if you do step into management, you can always, and you decide after a year or two or something that it's just not right, and you want to keep, go back to keeping your skills sharp, and be technical. you can do that. There is no no law, there is no set thing in our career says you have to follow this certain path once you enter it. Um, so feel empowered to just take the career into your own hands and do what you feel uh, is interesting to you and brings you energy and joy.
0: But if I want to downshift myself from an engineering manager to a lower position not a lower position but more of a technical position, can I claim the tech lead kind of position because I already know. The bit about management, but I don't want to delve too much into management. I want to delve technical, but at the same time, a little bit of management in that sense.
1: Yeah, there is um, uh, absolutely you can go from being an engineering manager to being more of a tech lead, whether it's at the same company or a different company uh, in transition. I think that a lot of companies um, will appreciate. The management experience and leadership experience that you have um, especially stepping into more of an individual contributor role there is another there is a role out there often also called the uh, uh, tech lead manager which is uh it's kind of a hybrid um it's it's a very it's a bit of a dangerous role i would say because you want to make sure you're not jumping into a role and then you're getting like a team of six people and you're also responsible for the deep technical expertise that is expected of like a tech lead. Um, typically those roles are, uh, I mean, some people have that capability and that's that's great. But typically um, for a tech lead manager role, you might have maybe a couple team members that you're a people manager for. And then you spend the other 50% of your time really focused on deep technical contributions. Um, and that's another kind of a, if you look at it as like a Venn diagram, that's another space that you, someone who's interested in some aspects of management, maybe having like a small piece of that while still maintaining it, that could be another type of role that um, uh, you could jump into. But um, again, something to just be you know very mindful of, depending on the company, that it isn't like a explosion of responsibilities but um all that to be said yes the short answer is yes you can go from being an engineering manager to a tech lead uh if you want to and i don't you know to be very clear as well um it could actually be you know it's not it could be a horizontal move it could be actually be a you know a step up um uh in, in responsibility because maybe you're taking on a uh stronger like a uh a larger tech lead responsibility, um, like a senior staff engineering role, for example. So those are all uh, uh, possible, but I think what's important is somewhat to be able to make some of those transitions is uh, keeping your skills sharp. And that's one of the challenging things I think about uh, stepping into engineering manager role is uh, building the time and space for yourself to keep those skills sharp so that you don't lose sight of the technical um uh trends and expertise that are happening
0: so like dedicate some time to write code on the side or learn a couple of things that are on the technical side so i'd be able to do them yeah i
1: think there's there's multi yeah multiple uh ways of keeping your skills sharp and i think that's when i was making the transition into management and uh, before i officially made the transition i actually spoke with other managers and if there was one thing that was consistent between all the managers that I spoke with it was keeping your skills sharp is going to be the is the most challenge is one of the most challenging thing as a frontline manager um because it's not something that it's hard to build in the time for that it's not like your core responsibility as an engineering manager to be making um those types of technical contributions so you have to find the ways to keep them sharp, and I think a few of the ways include um, still like reading, doing, uh, performing, and reading code reviews, even if you're not leaving comments on them, but still just being aware of here's the changes that are being made on your team and outside of your team. Trying new things, maybe on your own time. Um, you know, there's a lot of, for example, I'll give an example with over the last uh, couple of years with the. Technology trends in generative AI, um, you know, a lot of my core responsibilities weren't on generative AI, but it's an area that I knew was, I wanted to explore, build more skills in. uh, And so on the side, I would sort of build some small applications to help work with the open open AI API um, and build, uh, you know, my own chatbot or um, some other service to sort of build that skill set and see maybe there's something I can take from this um, experience, and bring it into my current role, maybe it'll impact the roadmap, maybe I can learn a bit about it, so that I can encourage others to, um, to do the same on the team. Um, So this aspect of continuous learning doesn't necessarily stop when whether you're an individual contributor or manager, but I think it becomes a little more challenging When you're a manager because it's just not your uh, necessarily core responsibility another way i would um on some teams that i've managed where i would sort of kind of keep my skills sharp is every once in a while i would take on a non-critical path task so something like deleting some old code or uh changing some strings just so i can feel and experience what some of my engineers experiencing when it comes to pulling down code, running the repository, running the service locally, uh, making a change, making a pull request. How does that experience feel? Um, it's important though, to recognize, I think as a manager, if you find yourself doing that more and more, like taking more and more of these small things on, that could be a sign of like a maybe a dysfunction or that you're just taking on too much as a team if you're kind of falling back on that as a crutch. So it's a, one of those things that you have to be mindful of, I think, as well, um, if you're an engineering manager of, especially of like larger
0: teams. Well, when managing the team, you mentioned about I don't have to micromanage people and I don't have to tell every single person, Hey, this is something that you need to to do, or I have to give them a certain level of trust that I have to work with them. Would you like to share some insights on how you successfully grew a team from five people to 12 cross-functioning engineers who start doing things different than what they got used to?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So when I first started managing a team of, of five web engineers, I would kind of classify my role, um, a bit as like a player coach, where I have deep technical expertise in the web domain. I have the connections with the company so I can help foster and direct a bit where we go while also giving room to the engineers and the team to uh, kind of spread their wings and build something new uh, that we're we're trying to build on video. And so um, uh, some of it is, being aware, like for example, in the process of building a new component, um, let's call it like a video upload component, we may uh, you know process may involve writing a an RFC or a spec just to sort of define here's what we're building it, here's why, here's what we're not, what's not in scope, and um, here's how here's like all the kind of a little bit of research that we've done and we'll time box that. And so that's something that I would give to the lead who's building that to drive. And as the engineering manager, um, I would help review that document and kind of and maybe ask um use the Socratic method of questioning or just ask questions around um, have we considered XYZ or um is it's you know, uh just to refine the thinking a bit, um, but not necessarily providing you know direct answer like oh you have to do it this way or that way um it's sort of like one way of look, viewing this is sort of like you're you have like a a porthole into the the whole process of software you're kind of peeking in just to kind of make sure things are still moving smoothly and that's what i view it as um and then you know kind of giving them uh the free reign to kind of go and and build that and uh Uh, properly acknowledge him when the project comes to an end as well, uh, making sure that they're receiving the feedback from other team members that they may have worked with and, um, and so forth. So I think just building this process that works for you as, as a manager is important and uh, for the team. Um, I think in then growing the team further from there as individuals on the team become more experienced both technically with the systems that they now own um, and they become a uh, that go-to person for the service it naturally sometimes lends itself into becoming the tech lead for that subsystem and so um, the management sort of responsibilities for a person uh, in that role becomes less of um, I'm guiding you and I'm kind of checking the boxes of like, okay, yeah, you're, you're moving the process along nicely to sort of more higher level strategic thinking of, okay, now that we're thinking about, now that you own this system, um, what's the technical roadmap for this, uh, uh, you know, let's say this video upload component for the rest, for the next uh, year or two, what would you like to see built? And sort of giving them more, um, uh, freedom to think about uh, now that you're, you have the deep technological expertise. Are you now talking with the other teams to help build the roadmap to make this the best possible video upload component that it could be? Um, are there technical industry standards, um, conferences, anything that we can get involved in where we can share our learnings? and also maybe gain some other learnings. And you can be the, you know, as the uh, tech lead of that system, you can be like the face of that and and uh, continue to drive that. So once you get to that point, it's like you almost have um, uh, staff engineers who are becoming, who are much more self-sufficient when it comes to, uh, understanding the roadmap, building out systems they're thinking longer term, they have uh, influence over more of the team and the surrounding team. And so managing more engineers or other managers becomes a possibility. You, you As a manager, I have now m- helped foster the situation that allows the individual to be a leader in their own right. And so I can now focus my attention on, gr- you know, helping also grow these other other engineers on the team. Um, I can help scale, further scale our efforts, and make this process that we have something that can now be scaled to more people. And so, that kind of key piece is, I think, where you can start to think about growing the team from, you know, five to six to seven to eight, and then ultimately. Uh, at LinkedIn, I ended up having 12 engineers uh, reporting to me. And the only way that worked, like 12 is a lot to have um, for one manager. And the only way that worked is because many of the engineers at team were now staff engineers. They were leaders of the systems and uh, components that uh, they were managing. And so there wasn't a need for me to be deeply in in the weeds on every single little thing this was they have the full trust and autonomy and skills and know-how um, more so even than i do to be able to take some of those subsystems and platform specific considerations for example web versus android versus ios into into play um and so my responsibility at that point is kind of shepherding all these different roadmaps together and uh, advocating for the team um, across the company to make sure that everyone knows that this is what we're working on. If you are doing something with video or media in general, here's how. Uh, here's you know who to talk to, um, and how to build that out. So, um, you know, to summarize all of that, I would say building, you know, growing a team is about building other leaders and whether they're individual contributor leaders or they end up becoming a manager themselves um, if you can build help build leaders out of the individuals in a team um, that is what can allow you to scale and take on more responsibility
0: what if i'm in a remote situation if let's say i'm dealing with a team remotely how would I be able to manage remote teams efficiently in a productive and team cohesive way? Like if we're in person, it's just very easy for me to deal, let's say with you, but if I'm remote and if I'm in another country or I'm in another place, it might be a little bit difficult. How would you manage that?
1: Yeah. Remote is certainly brings a lot of challenges, uh, in its own right. Um, I think in terms of some strategies and uh, aspects, there are different ways I look at it. One is what support does the broader company have in place for managing uh, remote employees? Often though, I think really the only way remote can work is if there's, or at least work really well, is if there is top-down buy-in that this is the method of work that we are doing because it allows us to bring a wider talent pool into our company. It helps us with our customers and so forth, like finding those, those are the reasons. And then does the company have a support system in place? For example, have they established uh, principles around communication in a remote setting? Um, Is that something that as a individual team that we can tap into to help foster that uh culture especially in in a remote setting um managing a remote team you know it's there's differences and there's similarities to be in person if you're in person um it can feel easier because it seems like oh I'm I'm in the office I can see this person right here that they're doing xyz um but in a sense, you still have to have trust uh, for them um, and and vice versa. And so in a remote setting, that trust, you still need to have that trust that th- their commitments are going to be met, that you're going to meet their commitments um, in terms of, for example, their career growth. Um, so a lot of that doesn't change. What does change is the communication. You can't just turn around and then say, hi. Um, you have to be very explicit and clear about how communication will be handled. When is it appropriate to have a synchronous meeting, a uh, call or phone call or what have you, and when is it appropriate to be using asynchronous methods of communication, like, uh, you know, chats like Slack, Microsoft teams, um, writing documents, uh, to kind of foster your thinking and really, uh, shoring it up before like making a decision. Um, so there's, uh, you know, making sure that those principles are in place and consistent for your team, um, ultimately becomes very, uh, critical to being able to manage a remote team, both for oneself as the manager and as well as the team members, um, it can be very difficult in a if you're starting at a remote company and you're trying to find resources, who to talk to. Um, so it's, it's critical to have the onboarding set up in such a way that people can self-serve in a way. Um, and they have someone they know they can go to, whether that's yourself as a manager or another uh, member of the team that can help connect them with those resources in the beginning. Um, so uh the other thing i would say is for managing remote teams um is setting a and it's maybe a bit counterintuitive but setting a regular cadence for um remote team members to be able to meet in person so uh, i think that it's it's hard to build it can be very hard to build relationships on a remote uh, setting. And I think when you're just over video all of the time or audio all of the time, um, it's, it's still, it's nice. You know, there's like another human at the end of the line, but there's something about every once in a while being able to really see a person that, um truly brings out their personality and their humanity and you build shared experiences that make it easier to collaborate and work together in the future. So I think it's important for teams and, and companies, um uh and this is my view to have a regular cadence set up and and make sure that's agreed upon from the outset like if it's once a year the team from all over the world gets together to uh, meet in person Um, or maybe it's once a quarter or uh, so forth Um, i think all of that that really matters Um, the last thing i'll say is that time zones are a huge challenge um, if you have a team that is cross time zone, setting asynchronous communication principles is critical, um, because oftentimes there may only be a very small window of time where things overlap, or are just, or are are uh, nice enough, even if it's like a little bit before or after the end of a day for somebody, where you can come online and have a critical synchronous discussion or decision being made and so having that clarity of how you communicate is super important um that's why a lot of teams even if they're I, I think the trend and this is just my view observing what's happening i think the trend is that um you know for remote or even hybrid is that similar time zones are now becoming becoming more of a a thing where keeping people like. A, having at least like four hours of overlap or, or or so forth and, and kind of keeping within the same time zone for certain teams where you're doing that tight collaboration within the team. Um, because sometimes you just need that synchronous time together to pair program, to, uh, work together on something that's uh, really challenging. Uh, and so being able to have that opportunity, uh, becomes important. Um, definitely not the only way things have been done. There are uh, a couple of companies I can think of that do have, you know, they have that full remote setup at, and it works really well for them. Um, but I think it it comes from just the fact that a lot of companies still are building that muscle, even to this day, even with everything having been remote previously during uh, uh, the height of the pandemic. Um, I think there's just still a lot of, uh, uh, Challenges like people getting into that mindset of working remote and thinking about these principles and adhering to them versus uh hey, let's just get in person and, and hash this out. So some thoughts on uh, uh remote and team cohesion.
0: But how can I foster a culture of growth and skill development within a team, even if let's say in a remote setup?
1: Great question. I think the what stays the same, whether it's remote or not, is that the culture that you build, uh, within the team and the goals that you set, uh, are still the same. Like you're still thinking about and working with each individual to find out what it is that makes them tick. How are we going to build towards the career that they envision? Um, are there skills that they're looking to grow? and setting a goal around that um whether you're remote or not remote i don't think that changes i think the the challenge becomes um if the aspect of how a team or individual is trying to grow relies on another team or person that has a different set of principles that have been set up on on a team in terms of communication it becomes harder to uh to find those points where you can say okay let's get together to collaborate and so that's where in my view it comes in that the companies uh, that have these remote setups really do need to set a that kind of top-down view of here's our perspective on how we collaborate and uh, foster these connections in a remote setting um and not just sort of leave it to the whims of each individual individual team to kind of figure out on their own. Because um, I think that then results in that can result in some disappointment where maybe somebody's looking to grow in a certain way that involves uh somebody else on a different team, and then but you can never find a way to connect. Um it's just uh not it's just not working out, and that can foster some uh 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 challenges of how am i going to grow if i can't there's this critical thing that i want to do or this critical person that i want to interface with and i can't do that because we don't have the same uh communication set up so that's where i think as managers um frontline we have to be the ones also to step up and speak up and say here to our leadership teams as well to say we need um st- some structure and expectations around how we communicate, so that we can help foster those growth. And so, um, you know, if the if the top level leadership not doing it, then that's where the leadership from individual managers should come and shine through to build that, uh, to to build that muscle, to build that communication between people.
0: And after I built this and this environment this and I fostered this really good positive team environment, how do I know if this person is fit for my team or not? if this engineer or this person is good enough to be fit inside this team?
1: I think a lot of um, hopefully you know it's it's interviews are always very challenging, and if you're hiring new um it's you know, you try to get as many signals as possible to make the most informed decision as possible on both sides when, when hiring. Um, but I think as far as in general, the qualities that um, I would look for to look for to determine if they're a good fit in the team are things like um, uh, curiosity. Um, is there a uh, demonstration of being curious about the systems that we're building, like going beyond the surface level to just dig a little bit deeper to understand why something works the way it does? Um, grit, I think that especially in a remote setting, having this idea of grit and not, uh, giving up in, in the face of challenges, whether it's a technical challenge or a communication challenge is very important. Um, and just being able to push through that. Um, and, uh, care is another, uh, aspect is actually, uh, one of, uh, Algolia's values, but care around how we communicate with others um keeping in mind other team members are the customers or stakeholders that are involved and whatever it is that we're building and really whether or not you're a manager having just that humanity with people and being able to say um you know what i'm i'm going to help uh them i see that somebody is asking on slack that they don't know where to look for a particular code base. And I do know that, so I'm going to share that. Or even if I don't know that, I'm going to set aside time and, and help them to do that. Um, and in the process, maybe I'll learn something as well.
0: But I'm going to shift towards a different question with a different context. Sure. Sure. With the rise of AI, we start seeing employees and managers utilizing tools like ChatGPT to get things done. What do you think these tools, let's say like ChatGPT or GitHub Copilot transform the role of an engineering manager? And will I be able to evaluate a certain employee's performance based on utilizing those AI tools? So previously in the past, where you said about someone would write code and I would code review it and see it. Now, there are certain tools that does the code review for you. There's uh, certain tools that would write almost perfect code, not 100%, but like almost, that's too good. How would I evaluate the person that I'm dealing with if he's using those tools? And what kind of these tools that makes my life a bit easier?
1: Yeah. So I think in terms of evaluating an employee's or team member's performance, uh, I think, it's it's it'll sound like a non-answer but I think a lot uh stays the same. At the end of the day, you, um on almost any team that I've been on um as a manager in general, uh evaluating which what does uh someone get done and how do they get it done? Um in terms of how you get it done, uh how is that uh, individual collaborating with others? Um Are they communicating effectively uh, and frequently about changes in direction, uh, changes in deadlines, needing to shift things versus kind of making things, you know, things turning into a surprise, um, right? At the 11th hour. Um, Are you meeting your commitments? So if you make a commitment that you're say you're going to do something, are you doing that? Um, And uh, there's a, a, a popular phrase from a, a, um, uh, co-founder of LinkedIn. And, uh, it was, uh, trust is consistency over time. And I, you know, I think since I've heard that it's something that I feel is, uh, very important that if you can build that trust, there's a lot that you can get done together. Um, in terms of evaluating that performance, I think that there's, um, uh, there's, not much that changes with AI tools. Like if you're using an AI tool, the thing that I'm going to be looking at is, um, uh, is it in com- like ultimately in compliance with the broader company's uh, system? So, you know, uh, some companies may not have policies on it yet. Some companies may have explicit policies on using those tools. Um, so that's, that's the level at which I would kind of look at it. And if you're using something like GitHub Copilot and it's, you know, like approved and we're, we're using it and it's helping us get things done. It's helping you get things done. I think that's all the better. I think, especially as an engineering manager, the way I see the role shifting, um, is it could actually help engineering managers, um, get, certain things done where previously it would not be possible i can give a you know i can speak to my own experience where um you know as an engineering manager there's a lot of can be a lot of context switching you're jumping from meeting to meeting one-on-ones you don't have a lot of time in between things to just try something out um i think some of these ai tools actually can really help with that if it's maybe you wanted to write a script to help pull some data, um, previously something that may have taken, you know, an hour of focused effort now is on the order of minutes because you can describe what you need and get uh, the script and maybe tweak it a bit to have it work, and then you're able to serve a need that you previously uh, didn't have before. And so I see, in some respects, this is just my projection, but. I do think that there may be a bit of a flattening in like the organizational structure of companies as a result. If once this becomes more and more ubiquitous for engineering managers and for managers in general, um, cause there's just more that you may be able to get done, uh, and you can focus now more of your, where you may have had to spend more time on, um, building things, uh, you now can focus more on the people and, Um, that's something I don't think generative AI has really cracked yet. Um, you still need the humanity of, of someone involved there. And I think that's where uh, managers can, can really continue to have value, um, to helping shape the direction of people's careers and connecting that to the overall goals of the company, but to bring it back to individual employees and individual team members and their performance, um, those usage of those tools, I think, uh, can only help in terms of uh productivity as long as it's allowed and um it you know I, I see it as like a rising tide lifts all boats if you learn how to use something like github copilot and it makes you feel more productive then that's great now we can uh uh it's not going to change um this say how you'd evaluate if you're still a jerk uh if you're or if you're a jerk to your team members and by getting things done that's you'll be evaluated um whether or not you're using generative ai to get things done um i respect so i think uh what you get done and how you get done still be evaluated on that and whether or not generative ai is used is for me less of a question of oh you use this tool to help you versus um oh as long as it's allowed um uh, why not it's it's it can help us refine our thinking and uh ultimately potentially get
0: more done or just remove the usual day to day tasks that i don't have to waste my time on
1: absolutely i think it's um i could already see some uh aspects even outside of like the technical Uh, aspects like GitHub Copilot to help uh, write code um, in a way. I think that um, generative AI can also help in a bit in terms of, you know, imagine you're out for a couple of weeks, and you're looking to get back up to speed, um, summarizing conversations and pointing you or sometimes some, you know, summaries are getting better and better uh, these days. But At least pointing you to like the right places to focus and saying, "Okay, here's there were ten conversations about Project A, and here's a summary of some of the decisions that were made." You know, there's things like that that I think can help. uh, You know, speed up uh, getting up to just getting up to speed on a project or um, dealing with some of the the challenges of communication. And you know, in that example of of being away for a while. Um, I think just also make it so that people feel comfortable taking time off too, uh, which I think is, is very important um, for the health of our individuals and for the team and for a company to be able to take vacation and not feel that like inkling of pressure of Oh, no, I'm gonna come back to work. And there's gonna be this whole pile of stuff I have to deal with. Um, and so I think you know, Gen AI could, could help with that a bit.
0: I'm going to move to a different question, which is you joined New York City's NYC's Tech in Residence program to teach front-end to College of Staten Island students. What mm-hmm. motivated you to join and how has teaching impacted your professional perspective? And here's the thing that I always ask, does academia prepare you to actually enter the market? A lot of, There's a lot of debate on whether academia actually oh. does prepare you or not.
1: Yeah, I think so one of the so a bit about the the tech in residence program, I, um, I was inspired to join for a couple of reasons. One was a senior staff engineer at the company in the New York office. Um, He had actually kind of led the way uh, in in this and he was the first person to um, from the company to teach a course and be part of the program. And after he had done it, uh, it's some. It's an ambition that he also had always had, and this was just like the right opportunity. He got the uh, go ahead from leadership to to move forward with it, um, and so he did a class for a semester, and then he came back and shared his experience. And it was a bit of like a you know recruitment tool to see if any other folks would join and whatnot. But I was I was actually very inspired by it because um, as someone you know i have I have a college education but I didn't explicitly study computer science um a lot of my knowledge and skills are uh have been self taught uh from the time I was a kid to now um, and so in that respect, I didn't have a formal education around uh, some of those aspects and so i there were some moments in my career where having the right person who answered the right question, or who helped mentor me, um, or helped guide me to a resource, uh, I feel really helped uh, me on my career. And I felt that this was an opportunity where I could maybe help, uh, help that for somebody else, you know, pay it forward. Um, and so I, you know, again, raised my hand, say, hey, I'm going to to, I'll, I'll take this opportunity and um, for one semester I developed a curriculum around just building a real web application using some of the technologies we used at LinkedIn. In this in this case, particularly uh JS and we mixed in some other things like a uh uh GraphQL as well. Um and it's I think what the whole goal of the course as well was to help build something real so that maybe it's it's a way for people to say like hey is is the web development uh something that software development something that i want to be an aspect of maybe there are a lot of people in the course who and are in the programs that you know oh i want to be an engineer but i'm not sure what kind of engineer i want to be and i felt that doing like a real building something real could help um with that and then the other aspect is add it to your portfolio. This could be something that you could add to your portfolio. So when you go seek out internships or full-time jobs, that this is something that you can show and you can talk about how you built it, how you worked with another team, how you worked with a team, um, how you learned new technologies. Um, And this can be like a part of the story that you tell to, to hopefully get your foot in the door at a company. And one of the unique things about this course was that we got to host the course inside of the LinkedIn office. Um, And so uh, students, they actually, some of them traveled actually very far, um, but they came into the office, they got to experience some of the amenities and see, kind of observe what people are doing in an office setting. Um, And I think I'm hopeful that that sort of helped kind of, I think one of the things that academia maybe doesn't prepare you for is like, what is an office setting like if you haven't been in one before it's it's different you know it's you're not sitting in a classroom uh or even in a lab it's uh meeting rooms and maybe some offices, maybe some cubicle type areas uh and how you behave in that certain area you know that's all i think new and so I think having the class in that setting is something that I felt was uh very unique and i'm I'm grateful that we were able to do that um I think, in terms of how teaching impacted my perspective, I think it 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 showed that how much uh, patience is uh, an important quality to have, um, and I think for both teacher and student, uh, sometimes, and this happens in the real world on real the job, you come across a problem and you're just banging your head against it trying to figure out how do i solve this programming challenge how do i get past this um and so that's where that idea of grit comes into play but knowing that you've you have the problem solving ability that you can build this and that you can you've done it in the past with other subjects uh and that you'll can get through this i think that's impacted my perspective in a way that you know people come from so many like you 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 hear it you hear this like people come from different backgrounds they have different circumstances uh different educational backgrounds you 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 know we hear this said over and over again but i think it's until you practice it that you really start to build this um uh true like uh empathy for how to navigate these situations and i think um in terms of how does academia prepare um i think well that's it was one of the reasons that this program existed and and why the uh, uh, city university of new york and and the uh, city of New York put together this program is because there was this disconnect between what was taught in college and and industry people in the industry saying like oh students aren't." really prepared for some of the aspects of what's at what's there. And so some of the gaps that um, I, I think that are captured by programs like these are um, building like specific technical proficiency in like the latest and greatest of, of what companies are doing right now. Um, I think some of the skills that, that also come up um, that I hear often are, just general problem-solving skills, Um, whether it's technical or not, like being able to solve a problem, I think is at the core of engineering. Um, And so that's something that I think sometimes you may not get from a course on the theory of uh, uh, computer science or something. Um, I think some other critical things I I would point to are That I came across a lot and in some of the sessions that I have to this day with um, aspects of the program that I'll I'll share are the ability to debug something is something that I think isn't you know whether even whether it's a boot camp or a college program I think that's something that has been lacking Um, and so um, finding either the resources to build that expertise on debugging or um, just building and trying and running into problems and figuring out how do I solve this this technical challenge and how do I debug this challenge I think is a critical skill um, and I think overall the you know this idea of flexibility and adapting to change is something that uh, you know the industry is always moving there's always going to be something i mean this this generative AI stuff has really is really shifting, um, how we work, uh, in, in pretty radical ways pretty quickly. And so something to maintain is that I think that academia can prepare you for is that learner's mindset of, you know, always be learning, you know, be humble about what you know and what you don't know and, and be, uh, confident that you have the capabilities to learn. Um, and to always be learning, and so adapting to that and adapting to changing circumstances um, within the workplace uh, I think building that resiliency is something that um, may not come through uh in a traditional academic uh setting um and if if you if one feels that maybe you haven't had that kind of adversity yet in dealing with changing changes and and challenges um finding those circumstances and building that muscle I think is very important. So I think the one best best way to do that is to build um and try building uh if you see something that you like um try building a, like a copy of it and seeing like okay, can I build something like this? How would I get started? Um let's start from the ground up and see how far we can get. Uh that's something that uh to this day I I, when I can find the time, I do that in order to to help build my understanding of certain concepts or uh, technologies.
0: I always end the podcast with a mental health question. It's always what I always do. Have you ever faced burnout or imposter syndrome? And if you did, then what do you do to resolve towards them?
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, I faced both. Um, My first experience with imposter syndrome was when I uh, was first approached about the opportunity at LinkedIn. So this was in 2012. I was uh, just a couple of years out of college working at my first job in Colorado. And I received a message from LinkedIn about LinkedIn, uh, and a web developer opportunity. And I didn't even, you know, I, I messaged back, I didn't even get on the phone, I was thinking to myself like how could a silicon valley company be reaching out to me someone who doesn't have a this traditional um uh computer science education um who's just like a couple years into my role like i surely they're doing some very advanced stuff and if i even uh pick up the phone it would be so embarrassing for me and i'll feel so bad <laughs> and so i uh I actually, I told them like, Oh, I'm, I'm not interested right now. Like I, you know, just thinking like, I, I can't even, I can't even do this. Um, I was very lucky. They reached out again in, uh, like six months. It's like, Hey, are you ready now? And like, let's chat. Um, so I just said, okay, I'll take the call. Uh, I just have to swallow my pride and, you know, I'll just do this and just see what happens. And I end up, Going through the entire process, the uh, phone interview, and what built my confidence was like, oh wow, I was actually able to answer these questions, uh, most of them. And then I went to the in-person interview, uh, which I was like, oh, this whole panel interview—I've go through like four sessions of four or five sessions with different people rotating in and out. I have no idea what to expect, um, but I was able to have conversations and answer the questions and for things that I didn't know I was very clear and, and honest about but it was a very cordial and good experience and I came out of the interview feeling like wow here I was putting the you know silicon valley on a pedestal of this is like the top tier and they're, they're doing things I could couldn't even comprehend and I came out of the interview experience thinking like wow i actually even if i don't get this role i know my stuff i know like the things that i'm doing are technical like the technical stuff that i'm doing on on web in the web development domain um this is working like i'm i'm doing good uh like the fact that i was able to kind of do this um and that like getting that kind of like positive boost just from doing it um was was great and since then i i honestly believe that doing interviews uh is is a great way to kind of keep you humble and keep your skills sharp even if it doesn't go well it's something that uh it's just like anything interviewing is is a skill and doing that over and over again even if you're super comfortable in your role you're happy about your growth you're not looking to make a move um even just doing a practice session with a friend or something is is a great way to just make sure you kind of keep that up. And, but in any, in any case, that situation, it, it kind of, it kind of blew the blinders off of the imposter syndrome. I was like, Oh, wow, I actually know what I'm doing. Ultimately I, and I did get the role and it was, uh, it was a kind of a life-changing experience for me. Um, so all that to say, don't, Try not to let imposter syndrome prevent you from taking on other new opportunities. I think that uh, you may surprise yourself uh, with with the capabilities that you have, and it's just another way of growth. Um, in terms of burnout, I have definitely experienced this in my career. Um, I would say most recently it was probably in the last six months of my time that I was at LinkedIn. And I didn't realize, I think the critical, I didn't realize it was burnout at the time. I just thought, okay, I'm gonna work through this. Um it's I'm like uh really challenging situations, um, a lot of work on my plate, I'm constantly working. Um I'm not, you know, I'm at home. I'm when I'm at home, I'm not present, really present like with my wife. I'm just Uh, constantly thinking about work and um slowly it like takes away at your health your physical health as well your mental health it you don't realize how uh how it just sort of creeps up and it it uh, starts to pull away at you and it was it wasn't until i made like the transition uh away from the role and I looked back and I said, wow, I was a totally different person. I uh wasn't setting boundaries for myself. Um I was taking on too I wasn't like taking care of my own like physical health uh from from a diet and exercise point of view. Um it was just work, work work. And uh since then I've realized and it's something I am very mindful also of as a manager, uh with my team members as well, is looking out for those signs and make hopefully making it to the point where you no one feels like they lo- end up looking back. <laughs> so it's like, oh yeah, I was I was burnt out. I was uh not as present in my daily life and it was just affecting um how I felt, and I f- am lucky that I had a partner, uh, my wife, who who recognized that I was feeling that way, and that I was, you know, be, you know, I was, I was just had a different demeanor, and it wasn't until I made a transition and ch- like set and said, you know, I'm going to set these boundaries and make sure I make my health a priority. Um first and foremost. And then within my role, I'm going to make sure we have very explicit expectations of uh, here's what we're working towards. And here's what we're expected to do um, so that things aren't as ambiguous um, and that we're working towards things that are important. I think another aspect of burnout is you feel like you're toiling away And it doesn't feel like it's for a greater purpose, or maybe it's, you think it is, but nobody else does. And so it kind of, it's like, oh, what am I, what am I doing here? I'm just like putting in all this effort and I don't feel like it's having that positive impact that I'm looking for. So that was my experience with burnout. Um, And I think that just setting boundaries, setting very clear expectations, uh, and giving yourself periods of rest, even if you feel like you don't need it, I honestly believe you need it. Everyone needs it. Um, make sure you're getting the rest and the sleep that every, that you deserve. Um, and uh, from there, uh, since then, I haven't experienced those feelings again. Um, and I, I think that having gone through it once, I'm I'm very much present in saying like, I do not want to go through that again. And I'm going to make sure to make, keep making my health a priority as well.
0: Thank you so much for listening to the episode. If you liked it, then feel free to watch our previous episodes and feel free to follow us on social media and rate us on your favorite podcast app of choice.